You are listening to podplanet.org. Does thunder curdle milk? Yes. With that in mind, this episode of Pod Planet is dedicated to the dairy farmers of America. You share the love, we share the milk. Copeville, Texas, population 106. In 1939, the Copeville Church burned to the ground, and with it, all notions of righteousness. Not long after the church fire, the town's schoolhouse was blown away in a storm, leaving a chalkboard and a pair of shoes. Although Austin intended to rebuild the church, and the school, and wire the area for telephone service. Upon America's taking up cudgels on behalf of the Allies in the Second World War, all plans were abandoned. On the night of June 6, 1944, 19-year-old U.S. soldier Ricky Stockton of Copeville died of strangulation when his equipment malfunctioned during an attempt to parachute into Normandy. Seven months later, his 17-year-old widow, Nyla Stockton, went into labor alone. On December 4th, five miles outside Copeville, on a squalid chicken farm, Lila Stockton gave birth to his son, Swain Richard Stockton. After toweling him off and cutting his umbilical cord with a pair of poultry shears, Lila held Swain close and together they cried themselves to sleep. Three days later, driving a derelict truck, Lila's unreliable mother, Big Mama, arrived. Impaired to check in on Lila. Although Big Mama had delivered Lila unsupervised 16 years ago herself, she was astonished to see Lila had done the same. Well, said Big Mama, nipping on some moonshine from a flask. They still do it like that in Cuba, so... Down to her last cup of flour, and box of cornflakes, Big Mama drove Lila and baby Swain to Copeville for supplies. While shopping at the general's store, Lila asked Big Mama if she would look after Swain while she stepped outside 
to call her best friend on the payphone. It was the only phone within 24 miles. Taking Swain in her ample bosom, Big Mama said, that's fine as long as you don't take too long, girl. Crossing the road called Tex 78 to get to the phone booth, Lila was hit and instantly killed. Hearing her daughter scream, Big Mama ran into the street holding Swain. This was the eight hit and run in the county that fall. Swain's daddy was gone, and now his mama too. This family was cursed. Swain was a beautiful child with fair skin and long blonde hair. An orphan, Swain was raised outside Cokeville by his moonshine-addicted grandma, Big Mama. Big Mama had no money, but was an accomplished thief and knew how to get stuff for free from the state and neighbours and sympathetic relatives. As was the custom in parts of rural America at the time, Swain grew up unbleached. He was put in frocks, skirts, dresses, bonnets. His shoulder-length hair was often trussed in a pink bow. When he turned five and presumably knew how to go about his business, Big Mama and Purvis, her boyfriend and second cousin, held a rite of passage for Swain, a breaching, which meant he was given a pair of shorts and one pair of cotton pants. His frock and dresses were burned and never seen from again. His long hair was cut with a pair of ancient sheep shears and that was that. Like all farm boys, Swain had chores. He cleaned the chicken coop and fed Big Mama's herd of blind goats. Eventually, Big Mama thought Swain could use some schooling, and that job fell to Purvis. Despite constant beatings, Swain didn't take much to reading or writing, and within two weeks, all discussion of schooling was dropped. In 1962, when he was 17, on the recommendation of a relative, Swain got a job in Fort Worth as a baggage handler at Lone Star Air. The only skill required was the ability to match up colour-coded luggage tags. On his days off using the free airline tickets given to employees, Swain travelled first to Utah, the Beehive State, then to San Francisco, where he blossomed. 
On the first weekend in San Francisco, Swain experimented with psychedelic drugs and some other things. After that, a pattern was set. Weekday, Swain worked in Fort Worth. Weekends, Swain explored San Francisco. Sadly, after a few months on the job, Swain was caught stealing, red-handed, and fired. Then he was blacklisted from the travel industry. Freshly made, eh? The following weekend, fate intervened, and at a street party in the Tenderloin, Swain met an aspiring 29-year-old chap screenwriter, Wojtek, and his 19-year-old American girlfriend, Abigail. The chemistry between the three was immediate. Although their relationship was tempestuous and they bickered a bit, within two weeks, Swain, Abigail, and Wojtek had formed an intimate triumvirate with its own internal logic and rules. Sharing an extra-large custom-made bed, Swain, Abigail and Wojtek spooned with a childlike innocence only seen in households of three. During early 60s, most parts of the human body were off-limits to Americans. But thanks to Swain's innocence and Wojtek's European background, such etiquette was not in effect at Abigail's home. As you may have guessed, neither Wojtek or Swain had much, if any, bankable talent yet. But it didn't matter because Abigail had loot, thanks to a family fortune and lots of it. And like her hero, George Orwell, she was a socialist with no fondness for reality. Except for women, whatever Swain and Wojtek wanted, clothes, pizza, drugs, motorbikes, booze, watches, cars, Chinese food, trips, or cash, Abigail was happy to supply. For no one was more generous. She threw money in the air. It meant nothing to her. Must be nice. By October, with a roof over his head, clothes on his back, and involved in a stable relationship of sorts, things had settled down for Swain, and he became slightly more adventuresome. On a dare with Wojtek, Swain hitchhiked to LA and stayed at Spahn Ranch. 
the notoriously strange cowboy movie set managed by a blind dairy farmer named George. From the moment he showed up, Swain fit in. On the first day, he got stoned and staggered around in a tight, fringe buckskin shirt and nothing else. The next day, Swain met an unctuous drifter named Tex, who introduced him to guns. Look, said Tex, there are rifles, revolvers, pistols, assault weapons, 45s, Uzis, flintlocks, Lugers, 38s, muzzle loaders, and Saturday night specials. And that's just a start. Swain and Tex became friends and spent a few hours every day getting high and shooting small animals. Tin cans, the larger targets made from the mountains of trash accumulating around the ranch. On the last night, everyone gathered by the barn and stared at the moon. No one could explain what it was or how it got there because no one knew basic astronomy. A few days after coming home, Swain began eating a lot of mushrooms. When he was high, Swain became childlike, spending hours watching TV. Then you wait till you're 18. And that comes the day. Boy, when you get 18, you really get it. Or playing with Abigail's leftover collection of dolls. Let's play house. I love you. Sometimes he could not recognize himself in a mirror. New York City, November 1963. 20-year-old Eve Fields and her 21-year-old co-worker Avery Fowler were married. They lived on the east side of Manhattan and came from good families. Like everyone of that era, they looked much older than they were. First, all about Eve. She was a little sparkle and a little shine with a tastefully bejeweled Whiting and Davis purse that went everywhere she did. It's what she carried in the purse that makes the heart skip a beat. Given her precocious sense of fashion and high degree of political, business and artistic sophistication, most people thought Eve grew up on Fifth Avenue and attended the Sorbonne in France. It may explain her delicious accent when ordering dinner at Le Pavillon and why there was a copy of 
la planète des singes on her night table. But the fact of the matter was, Eve grew up setting traps, chopping wood, and hunting squirrels in Maine. She was of old Mayflower stock, and while a girl, a member of the Cape Elizabeth Tennis and Target Club, for which she won numerous trophies and gold medals for her marksmanship. Although Eve was all sugar and spice on the surface, bubbling just below was a youthful Amazon as fearless as any Navy SEAL. Then there was Eve's co-worker, Avery Fowler, the boyish 21-year-old Wunderkind, the son of Thomas Fowler, one of Madison Avenue's legendary hucksters. Avery went to the best schools in New England. His clothes, even his briefs, were tailored. Wishing to be on TV, Avery took acting lessons. He soon appeared on a series of TV commercials for a seasoned chicken coating mix. At the audition, all he had to say was, and I helped. When those three magic words slipped off his tongue, everyone agreed Avery Fowler was made for the part. He appeared seven more times on behalf of the seasoned chicken coating mix before being retired. It was an auspicious start to an odd yet wonderful life. Long an admirer of PR genius Edward Bernays, Avery was like a golden retriever in a suit. When Avery bought a coffee, he always bought an extra cup, just in case. On the chance that you'd like a cigarette after lunch or during a meeting, Avery carried a fresh pack of Luckies, even though he himself did not smoke. And very much like his dear papa, Avery was forward-thinking. Anticipating the British invasion by two years, Avery ordered some slim-fitting suits from Anthony Sinclair and Tommy Nutter in London. In January, Avery's new housekeeper, yes, Avery had a housekeeper, Fiesta Mars, was scheduled to fly to the UK to pick up the threads. Of course, Avery suspected Fiesta was illegal, but not underage. But she was both. More about Fiesta in another episode. On the road, Avery drove sports cars, engineered and manufactured in England and Italy. Although his papa Thomas encouraged him to try a domestic, please, Avery would not bend. To sum up, Avery was smart, 
pleasing to the eye, polite, well-dressed, and spent an hour a day at the Yale Club doing some kind of calisthenics with a guru from India. Now, I ask you, what kind of brainy, good-looking New York girl wouldn't want to alligate with an impossibly sexy beam like Avery Fowler? As promised earlier, there's a surprise in this box of candy-coated popcorn and peanuts. Yes, Eve and Avery were married, but not to each other. Eve and Avery were no more than co-workers at Elf's Apron, America's largest distributor of home holiday decorations and tchotchkes. Since the 1960 election and sort of reminiscent of the hopeful new president and first lady, Eve and Avery were trumpeted as the new face of Elf's apron. So young, so alive, and yet so American. Wandering the halls of Elf's apron, every conversation was punctuated by queries like, has anyone seen Eve and Avery? Or, to Eve and Avery know, or can we switch that date? Eve and Avery are at Macy's all day. Even Murray Solomon, the president of Elf's Apron, was under the Eve and Avery spell. Murray was the first to admit Eve and Avery are the greatest thing to ever have happened to this damn company. I've often asked, what was the fuel behind the American juggernaut? Some say it's manifest destiny or the natural outcome of the Marshall Plan, but neither explanation was entirely true. American might was built on profit, profit generated from the sales of thousands of little items like Goldenberg peanut shoes or big pocket pens, or in the case of Elf's apron, gazillions of different decorations for Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's, Easter, Passover, Memorial Day, and the 4th of July. To satisfy America's drive to decorate, Elf's Apron distributes millions of the loveliest ornaments you've ever seen touched or plugged in and at prices Americans expect. At Elf's Apron there are American flags, garlands, spun glass balls, piñatas, porcelain or plastic molded pumpkins, snack, nut and cake trays, bats, 
witches and goblins, yule logs, artificial evergreens, as well as a variety of reusable Christmas wreaths, not to mention tinsel. And don't forget the canned artificial snow, as well as indoor and outdoor colored lights. Anywhere you slice it, when you examine these decorations through the prism of economics, you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars. Arriving in San Francisco, November 19th, 1963 for the holiday decoration convention Avery and Eve were ready to see the town and make an impression but because San Francisco has a dangerous reputation Avery and Eve decided to play it safe can I let you in on something do you promise not to tell for months now, Eve and Avery shared a secret. It all started at the office Christmas party. Having had one too many drinks, Eve and Avery crossed the line of professionalism and snuck into the broom closet down the hall. After a 10-minute warm-up of nice but unsatisfactory smooching in a closet barely big enough to house a goat, they went to the stairwell and for the next 45 minutes ravished each other like a couple of tail-tuffed bonobos from the Congo. Not ever wanting to be caught in the trap of the accidental family way, even Avery performed an assortment of sensuous positions and tricks, not one of which would lead to an appointment at a paediatrician's office. But all this wheedling suggests a question. Where on earth did Eve and Avery learn such barbarism in the early 1960s? To know the answer, we must go back in time. The Kinsey Report When Avery was 16, his uncle Lem Billings, a good friend of JFK's, gave Avery a signed copy of The Kinsey Report. There was the Kinsey name right there on the inside cover. The inscription read, Dearest Avery, Any friend of Lem's is a friend of mine. Happy birthday, boy. Al Kinsey. Avery was so happy he couldn't stop hugging Uncle Lem. Although the Kinsey report shocked adults, it had a calming effect on young readers. Even Avery had read the book many times. Call them nonconformists, heterodoxies, bohemians, whatever label you wish. 
For youngsters like Avery and Eve, the Kinsey Report contained foundational wisdom. After all, it set the table for millions of young people ready to shake off the shackles of the past and venture to the moon and back. The Kinsey Report defined first principles like consenting adult, who described a galaxy of exotic positions with easy-to-follow instructions, some illustrated to a new generation of free thinkers and pleasure seekers. The Kinsey Report marked the beginning of a social revolution. Eve and Avery were two of its first converts. Milk toast on the outside, and rascals when you ripped open the pack. In the new year, Avery and Eve graduated to thrice weekly meetings in a maze of midtown hotels with names like Aston, Biltmore, Savoy, Murray Hill, and the Stanhope, each more luxurious than the last. Using her silky smooth shoulders, Eve compared the softness of each hotel's sheets, pillows, towels, and comforters, one against the other. She kept her findings in a book. One day she hoped to publish an article about hotel linens in Cosmopolitan, but until that happened, she was on a research mission with Avery. And then there's that business trip to San Francisco in November. Just off the cuff, she imagined walking into Gumps with Avery. Wouldn't it be wonderful if he bought her some earrings there? People think it's easy to pick decorations months in advance, but it can be stressful. One wrong decision and you may as well toss an armed hand grenade into your neighbor's turkey. Still, people ask, what was the secret to Avery's and Eve's success? Well, as Eve told the Saturday Evening Post, it's all in the approach. St. Patrick's Day is about essentials like green drinking glasses and shamrock candy cauldrons. Or take Easter. There are tinsel rabbits, wood and metal bunnies, paper lanterns with Easter egg patterns and bunny ears. There are Easter room decorating kits that help you build a party theme on a budget. There are giant banners that say, Happy Easter. Or how about small, medium or large plastic Easter eggs filled with sugary goodness. Plus, there are bunny costumes for kids and adults. On a more solemn note, let's not forget the Jesus is Risen inflatable balloon set. 
or take Memorial Day in the 4th of July. Eve and Avery call these holidays interchangeable as both use exactly the same icons. There were patriotic plastic table covers, red, white and blue beer mugs, miniature statues of liberty, sturdy red, white and blue bunting, not to mention millions of 12-piece patriotic American flag indoor and outdoor decorating kits. Then there's Halloween, Thanksgiving, and the Grand Poobah Christmas. But at the end of the day, all that ordering and shopping was exhausting. Having spent Tuesday afternoon, all of Wednesday and Thursday, on the floor of the exhibition hall, Eve and Avery planned to take Friday off before flying home Saturday. Are sentimental people cruel? Wojtek was the sentimental type. When drunk, he went on and on about his mother and his grandmother and how great the Czech people were. How attractive, how genuine, how inventive, how un-American, how this and how that. But there was another side to Wojtek, a cruel side. They couldn't spend any time around Wojtek and not see it. In October, Wojtek began ordering Swain around. Swain, Wojtek would bark. Get some beer and cigarettes, we're out. Or Swain, make me a coffee. Or Swain, I'm going out tonight. Do my laundry. Tell your friends you're busy. Bossing Swain around was one thing, but bullying him was another. Who said you could watch TV? Did I say you could watch TV? Or, you know what you are, Swain? You're a dimwit. Or, you're no effing smarter than the chickens you grew up with. Or, if it wasn't for you-know-what, I wouldn't keep you around. At this point, Swain would tear up. Yes, it's true, Swain did grow up on a poultry farm. And no, he'd never set foot in a church, a library, an aquarium, an art gallery, a state fair, or a university. Nor did he know who Einstein, Pythagoras, Beethoven, Shakespeare, Walt Whitman, John F. Kennedy, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler, George Washington, Miles Davis, Bill Evans, Charlie Mingus, Betty Davis, Carl Jung, Billy Wilder, Alfred Hitchcock, Akira Kurosawa, or Truman Capote were. 
Swain wasn't deficient. No, sir, he'd just never gone to school. Abigail had some interesting thoughts on this, all of which are documented in her case file with psychotherapist Ben Litchfield. She knew Wojtek had a cruel streak. Most Eastern Europeans came with a cruel streak, she would say. Being a modern, educated American female, Abigail was fascinated by Wojtek's Slavic animus. But the way Wojtek was treating Swain these days was terrible. Yesterday she found Swain curled up on the bed while Wojtek lay on the floor <coughs> laughing. What a monster. Immediately Abigail took charge in a firm voice. Reminiscent of Miramar Gaddafi, she ordered Wojtek to wait downstairs in the kitchen. He flipped her the bird and left in a huff. Then she turned her attention to Swain and knew what to do. In the master bathroom, Abigail ran the water. She poured a cup full of bath soap into the four foot deep by six foot wide by eight foot long custom made porcelain tub from Latila and waited. It was dark out, so Abigail opened the curtains and looked at the moon. She lit some candles and burned some sandalwood. When the water reached the right height, she brought Swain to the bath. He undressed. Carefully put one foot in the tub at a time. Swain passively stretched out beneath the spume, the water up to his chin. Like a heron in flight, Abigail's palm glided across the phone before diving in and startling Swain. He blinked, then submerged his head. It felt like Christmas morning on the banks of the Russian River. Standing up, Abigail offered to make some licorice tea. Lost in reverence, Swain said nothing. She left the room, turned off the lights, left Swain alone. 
listening to the night birds sing, he thought, what was the moon anyway? Before he drifted off into a half-consciousness. Abigail returned and drained the tub. As the slightest spur could see him snap to attention, Abigail saw that Swain finish with a brief but cold shower. tightened her fist and punched him in the gut. Stunned, he keeled over, but Abigail forced him up and leading him by the ear into the living room, she told him to sleep on the sofa for a week. Then she reached behind the television set and yanked out the power cord. You won't be needing this any time soon, she said, as she wheeled the set out of the living room and down the hall. After having a rare cigarette beneath the mayor lemon tree in the back, Abigail went upstairs and snuggled up to Swain, who was fast asleep. Before nodding off, however, Abigail saw the card on her bedside table. It was from her father's friend, Dr. Jolly West. It read, Abigail, join me for an evening of poetry. Yours, Jolly West. The event was tomorrow night. Hmm. 
West was an interesting guy. He was a research psychiatrist at UCLA, but he had a home in San Francisco, not far from hers actually. She put the invitation back on the table and turned off the light. Staring at the shadows on the ceiling, she thought poetry reading. Second Light Bookstore was three blocks away from Abigail's house. She and Swain walked. On the way, Abigail thought about Dr. West. Besides being one of her father's friends, she didn't know much about him. But there was a lot to know. Grab a pen, you may want to take notes. Dr. Jolly West was a 32-year-old psychiatrist who worked for a secret branch of the CIA called Project MK Ultra. Unlike most of us, Jolly's mind was not bound by fear or convention, so he was free to think about whatever he liked and act upon it. Last year, Black Ops sent Jolly to San Francisco to recruit young drifters. Fueled by cheap hallucinogenics, the goal of Project MK Ultra was to create an army of brainwashed Manchurian candidates, young zombies who would follow orders, no questions asked. Take out a communist leader in Brazil. Yes, sir. Assassinate the president of Peru. Of course. Poison every last damn socialist in Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay. I would be honored, sir. Abigail, rich, naive that she was, knew nothing about Jolly's work in the area of mind control. As far as she was aware, West was one of California's top psychiatrists, as well as being a patron of the arts. Swain and Abigail arrived at the Second Light bookstore early. Jolly West was in the art section, talking to the store owner. Sarah Nimoy. Sarah was wearing a poncho. Also there talking were New York poet Frank O'Hara and the Navajo guest poet. The little bookstore was crowded, so Abigail and Jolly made eye contact and waved at each other over San Francisco's chattering class. As the lights dimmed, Sarah spoke. I'm Sarah Nimoy, owner of the Second Light Bookstore, and I'd like to introduce our special guest who came all the way from New Mexico for this. Let's show him a warm San Francisco. Welcome. 
after the reading, it was mix and mingle time. Abigail and Swain pushed through the throng to get to West. Jolly, over here, she said. I'd like you to meet my friend Swain Stockton. Swain's been living with me and Boytek. Jolly knew exactly what Abigail was hinting at when she said Swain was living with her and Wojtek. Turning to Swain, Abigail said, Swain, you should talk to Jolly. He does interesting work. Then to Jolly she said, can you talk to Swain? I know you're always looking for people to work with. It didn't take Jolly more than a minute with Swain to know he had his next Manchurian candidate. Signing up was easy. The deal went like this. Swain would get all the LSD he wanted and would be paid $350 a week for the 30 weeks. Besides taking acid every day, all the subject had to do was stop by Jolly's office once a week. To get things off on the right foot, Jolly stuffed an envelope with 30 tabs of LSD and $350 in Swain's hand. There's more where that came from. Jolly gave Swain his card and they agreed to meet tomorrow at 9 a.m. As the poet had run out of books, Sarah Nimoy turned off the music, gathered the ashtrays, and thanked everyone personally for coming. On the sidewalk, the poetry lovers quickly dispersed. Abigail and Swain said, Good night to Jolly West. She said, don't forget 9am tomorrow, Swain. And don't forget to take your medicine. Abigail could barely contain her excitement. Swain was going to work with Dr. Jolly West. Unbelievable. Friday, November 22nd. Waking up alone the next morning, Swain found Dr. Jolly's envelope. He took two tabs and put them under his tongue. Then he dressed, slipping on a new fringed shirt and some slacks. In the kitchen, there was usually a pot of licorice tea, but today there was none. Not wanting to be late, Swain stepped outside and hopped on his Schwinn. Once he arrived at Jolly West's home office, he rang the bell. West opened the door. 
Like most of the homes in Pacific Heights, West's house was professionally designed and appointed. Because he was still eating breakfast, Jolly walked Swain into the kitchen and offered him coffee. Swain nodded his head appreciatively. Jolly poured some into a cup. You want some of this? It's better than cream. Swain nodded again. Did you take your medicine this morning like I told you? Asked Jolly. Yes, sir. It can take up to an hour and a half with this new batch, said Jolly. Swain picked a plain white bagel from the basket, held it down on the cutting board as though he'd fished it out of a lake, and carefully cut it into eight one-quarter inch slices on the vertical. Swain carefully spread oleo on all eight bagel slices. Once finished eating, the two men left the kitchen and went to Jolly's office down the hall. When you entered the room, the first thing you saw was a green divan with menacing straps attached to it. You want me to lie down, said Swain. It's a divan, my boy. You lie on it, and it helps you relax. Swain kicked off his flip-flops, brushed his hair out of his face, and reclined. Once supine, Swain looked around Jolly's office. It was generously decorated, with assorted taxidermic trophies, like a penguin, a baby lamb, a rattlesnake, two Rhodesian ridgebacks, a white squirrel, a rooster, a bear, an iguana, an owl, a baby elephant, an adolescent tiger, a lion's head, and most disturbingly, a mama chimp and her baby. Did someone hunt these animals? asked Swain. Looking down in his notepad through Ted Kennedy-like half-glasses, Jolly said, You don't find penguins, chimps and bears dead on the side of the road, do you? As he was staring at the mouth of the mama chimp, Swain's eyes turned glassy. He could hear his heart beat and could feel himself floating into the trippy world of the LSD high. Then he thought about hunting. He used to hunt squirrels when he was a boy sometimes. Jolly held Swain's wrist and asked some questions. What's your age, weight, height, sex, place of birth, level of education? At 9.30, the bell rang and the session was over. Dang!
That was easy, thought Swain, sitting up. That was a good session, said Jolly. I think we're going to get along just fine. Swain walked his bicycle to the curb and said, See you next Tuesday, Doc. West retreated behind the screen door and spent the rest of the day sleeping. On his ride home, Swain thought about the taxidermic trophies in Jolly's office. All them critters gave him an idea of how to spend the day. But first he would go home and pick something up. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. When Eve woke up, she looked first for her purse and then for her cigarettes. Seeing both tucked under a copy of Look magazine on the bedside table, she turned away and smiled. Drinking in the room, the luxury, the furnishings. Eve thought the Thermont was great. Then lying on her back, staring at the ceiling above, she said, Do you think we'll really go to the moon? Avery made a soft grunting sound and quietly said, No. On a more personal level, he went on, where might we be in ten years? Ever think about that, Avery? Touching Eve's bony white shoulder, Avery said, when I'm with you, I can't think of ten minutes from now, let alone ten years. No, I'm serious, Avery, said Eve, sitting up topless. In ten years, I... I don't know, I want to be the first woman president of Elf's Apron. Don't be ridiculous, girl. That would be like putting a woman into space. When Swain got home, the house was still empty, but he was high and could care less. He went down the hallway and looked in the closet where he kept the firearms. On the top shelf were a variety of loaded handguns. Swain grabbed the Magnum 44. She was a real Beaut. Then he trotted into the kitchen and stuffed the gun in a grocery bag. On the front porch, he put the grocery bag in the basket of his bike and rode downtown. Let's see, where would I find the best game in San Francisco? 
thanks to Dr. Jolly's extra strength LSD, Swain was more detached from reality than he had ever been. I could go to Penny's or a hospital or a high school. Just then, he turned the corner and the Fairmont Hotel came into view. Looking up at the sign, he said, Or a hotel. Feeling hot, Swain ripped off his shirt and threw it in the gutter. Eve started rubbing Avery's foot with hers. Staring at his fingers, she said, Years from now, whatever I'll be doing or whoever I'm with, I'll always remember the week as our first trip to San Francisco together. Then she reached down to feel Avery, who stopped wearing pajamas when he was 12. In reply, he touched her tiny collarbone and said, And I'll tell people I was with this beautiful chick that I worked with in New York who bought us a bottle of champagne and persuaded me to spend an extra day with her at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, even though we were both married. Then Eve saw the blood drain from Avery's The heavy door of the hotel room burst open. Avery gave out a wail, a complicated series of agonized rising vowels, the sort of which Eve had never heard before. Had she pulled on the wrong thing? Had she perhaps gripped him too tight? Then through the door, salivating like an Italian mastiff, came a monstrous figure. A man, no, more like a boy, shirtless, ripped, and dripping with sweat, his blonde bangs soaked, his eyes bloodshot and on fire. His hands shaking uncontrollably, barely gripping a Smith and Wesson 44 Magnum. Although even Avery had no idea who it was, we do. It was Swain Stockton, baked on some of the strongest LSD ever made. I'll kill you both. Give me the child, it's mine, barked a swain. But there was no child, it was just a hallucination. Feeling the bullets zip past her, the nearly naked Eve slid over Avery and grabbed her purse from the bedside table. Swain, high as a kite, let more bullets fly. I'll kill you, I'll kill you.
kill you all, he raged. In what is now seen as the defining moment of her life, Eve pulled the tiny Luger LC9 out of her purse, and barely having time to aim, let rip five life-ending bullets, blowing off Swain's boyish face and a large chunk of his skull. Pinkish viscera and clumps of blood-stained hair hit the walls in a frenzy. The remainder of Swain's anatomical spatter landed on the crumpled slipcover at the foot of Eve and Avery's bed. Faceless but eyes still intact, Swain stared at Eve with a confused expression and then fell to the floor like an industrial-sized bag of baking potatoes. The room was silent, except for a gurgling sound coming from Swain's body. Avery, in mild shock, lay motionless on top of the sheets. Calmly, Eve picked up the phone from her bedside table. Hello, yes, this is Eve Fields in 2708. I'd like to report a shooting. San Francisco is a town of transients. With no dental records, Swain's faceless cadaver wasn't identified at the morgue. He was one of 13 nameless bodies found in San Francisco on the 22nd of November, 1963. But his disappearance didn't go entirely unnoticed. Having been badgered by Abigail all morning, Wojtek made a few calls and went through all of Swain's things in search of clues. Wojtek called his friends in Los Angeles, but they knew nothing. Abigail called Jolly West he hadn't seen Swain since yesterday. And at 10.30, the news came of Dallas. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know 
Saturday afternoon, the day after Swain died, Avery, still shaken, sat with Eve at the counter of the St. Francis Fountain, San Francisco's oldest ice cream parlor. Eve ordered a strawberry milkshake. Although Avery was not hungry, Eve insisted, and he ordered a hot butterscotch sundae with extra sauce. Behind the counter, a television ran the news about yesterday's assassination. Now for a report from our mobile unit in Chicago. We go to Chicago and Russ Bensley. There were pictures of the motorcade, Dealey Plaza, a school book depository, Lee Harvey Oswald, and of course, Mrs. Kennedy. Yes, I'm thinking of Mrs. Kennedy his mother and his wife. Yes. Well, that's about it. Here's a little girl. Do you know that the president is dead? Yes. Ever see the president? Waiting for her milkshake, Eve thought about her yesterday. At 10.25 a.m., the boy entered their suite at the Fairmont. He had a gun and he started shooting. At 10.28, using her Luger, Eve shot and killed the intruder, the boy. The first police officer arrived at 11.15 a.m. He said he was waiting for backup. Eve spoke and told the cop everything. I don't know who he was, I shot the boy in self-defense, she said. The officer looked down and with his boot kicked Swain's 44 Magnum aside. Eve then pointed to Avery and said, look at him. Avery, completely exposed, was in a state of shock. Then Eve reached into her brazier and produced two $100 bills. Look, she said, flashing the money in front of the officer's face. We don't want any trouble. Checking his periphery, the cop pinched the money out of Eve's hand and said, I understand. You've been through enough, Miss... Miss... What did you say your name was? Is this your milkshake, ma'am? said the waitress as she put it down on the counter with a spoon, a serviette and a straw. Yes, that's mine, said Eve. Eve jumped at the sound of the thunder. Then she stared blankly at the milkshake. Aren't you going to drink that, Eve? asked Avery. 
No. No, I don't think so. Miss, can I have a Coke? Hello, I'm Clive Desmond. This is Pod Planet Season 3, and you've been listening to The Fairmont Affair, Episode 28. The Fairmont Affair was presented by historian Nathan J. Moldyghost and was written and produced by me. If you want to know more about the people and the time presented in the Fairmont Affair, please listen to the eight-minute Fairmont Affair addendum with filmmaker Bill Thistel, which you can find on our website, gopodplanet.org, and you'll see a link. Podplanet would like to thank Jean-Francois, Monique Kelly, Oliver Wickham, and everyone at Tattoo Sound and Music. Our theme was composed by Jonathan Goldsmith. We'll be back in December with a new episode about whales. And in January 2021, we'll be dropping a new seven-episode miniseries called The Possum Harding Adventures, a young adult period drama set in 1977 starring 18-year-old racing car driver and adventurer Possum Harding. Until then, be seeing you.